the airport in Milan had great pizza. I mean, like that's that's Italy, right? Like the airports have great food. That's what's crazy. Ruins you. That's a, that's a trip that ruins you. Ruins and inspires, right? It, it killed me. You know, we were at the airport, and again, they have like these you know brick oven, you know, pizza places in the airport, it, uh, pasta places, and, and then there's a line of people down the corridor for McDonald's, and I'm like, come on, you're about to leave Italy. Like this is your last hurrah, and you're getting McDonald's. You can get McDonald's anywhere. No offense to McDonald's, but like, I don't know. It was I. I wanted to go up to those people and just like pull them to the to the pizza line but what can you do we need to be doing that a podcast that combines sports social media content and life i'm jonah ballo i'm keith steckler i'm elliot gerard we need to be doing that is a heartland group production come on we need to be doing that episode 71 he's recently back from Cannes, france uh, he also went to Italy on that trip. I might have unfollowed him on Instagram, but we are back. You might know him from the marketing and advertising world, specifically brand innovators, which we will no doubt get into. Uh, you might also know him on social as Chef Dave, showing off what he's been cooking. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't say shout out to Dad Chat. It's David Teicher. David, what's up, man? Hey, hey, Keith. Hey, Jonah. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I, I'm, I, I apologize for being so insufferable on Instagram. But I got to tell you that that Italy trip, it was only five days, but my wife and I have been dreaming about that for since we got married, you know, a decade and a half plus ago. Uh, and it was our first time there. So I was like, just kind of, you know what, I'm just going to do it. And uh, I'm just going to post the crap out of it. And if you want to mute me, unfollow me, go for it. So I know I was a little bit insufferable, but we had we had a good time. No, I love it. I tell my wife, I, my wife and I said 10 years. So that's in a year Okay, would be Italy. Although I did not get specific. So I've been pushing Olive Garden lately, but it's not going over very well. I mean, you know, you know, like a, a, there's an experience these days. You got to go to the Times Square Olive Garden. Does that still exist? I mean, that's like a, that's a life experience. I, I highly recommend it. All right. Well, let's start easy. Uh, where did you grow up? And then given your recent uh, trip to Italy, tell us about the pizza scene there. Sure, sure. I mean, so look, I, I was born in the Bronx. Uh, I wish I could say I grew up there and, and give myself a little street cred, but uh, we moved to Jersey uh, pretty early in my life. So I've been a Bergen County, North Jersey suburbs guy uh, pretty much forever. Uh, couldn't escape, went to Rutgers, you know, bounced around a little bit, but pretty much been in Jersey my whole life. Um, you know, one of these days I'll escape. I think every time, you know, whether I go to Italy or anywhere else, it's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing because it's not New Jersey, right? And uh, not a knock. We got we got great people here, great schools. It's awesome, but uh, there, there's a lot of the world, uh, you know, that that I think uh, could be could be really fun. But uh, so grew up in Jersey. And were you asking about the Jersey pizza or the Italy pizza? Well, I, I'm not even going to ask you to compare them, but no. just walk us through the Italian uh, pizza scene. Uh, I mean, it was it was uh, pretty amazing, as you'd expect, right? Just the dough, the quality of like the flour that they get there is different than anything that we have here. I mean, I literally got home and ordered myself an uni pizza oven. I'm Googling like Neapolitan pizza dough recipes. Where can I order special flour if you can get it straight from the farms in Tuscany? Um you know, so so we did we did three cities in Italy. We did Rome for a day. Then we went to uh, one of these hilltop Tuscan towns called Montepulciano uh, for a couple of days. Um, I think that probably had the best pizza. Uh, but dude, we went to Florence. It was great there. And then the airport in Milan had great pizza. I mean, like that's that's Italy, right? Like the airports have great food. That's what's crazy. Ruins you. That's a, that's a trip that ruins you. Ruins and inspires, right? It, it killed me. You know, we we're at the airport, and again, they have like these you know brick oven, you know, pizza places in the airport, it, uh, pasta places, in, and then there's a line of people down the corridor for McDonald's, and I'm like, come on, you're about to leave Italy. Like this is your last hurrah, and you're getting McDonald's. You can get McDonald's anywhere. No offense to McDonald's, but like, I don't know. It was I. I wanted to go up to those people and just like pull them to the to the pizza line but what can you do but it was you know it's it's the dough it's the prosciutto it's the buffalo mozzarella or the you know it, it just every little ingredient is so painstakingly perfect and just such a level up from what we get here uh it does it ruins you like you said but i'll have something to dream about and look forward to 
and maybe Here just try to replicate when I get my uni oven. I've heard they're pretty good. I'll, I'll wait for your uh, recommendation, but that's been on my list of like, hey, I, I think you can make pretty good pie with that from what I've seen. Um, obviously, ingredients matter, but now you know what to buy. So uh, I'm, I'm intrigued. I, I was really torn. I was going to go griddle, you know, for my, my uh, continued outdoor kitchen build out. Like I've got a smoker, I've got, you know, but I was going to go griddle Blackstone. I figured I'd use it a lot, but after Italy, I just did a complete 180 and I'm like, all right, uni it is, even if it's just for pizza, but um, I think you can do other things with it. I'll, 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 you'll see the pictures. If you follow me back on Instagram. No, we're back. We're back. Right. It was never an unfollow. It was probably a mute, if, right, if we're being right. honest. So I know you've been in uh, advertising and marketing for a while. Yes. Help people that are listening to this understand what is Brand Innovators and what was it, maybe, um, some of the things that uh, got you interested to, to head on over there and do what you're doing. And tell us what you're up to over there. Yeah. So, well, my background, I was an agency guy, first and foremost. So I started on the agency side. Uh, I was at McCann back when it was McCann Erickson, uh, you know, early, earlier days of my career. Uh, but I knew some folks over at AdAge just from social media, from Twitter, had some great relationships there. Uh, they brought me over uh, to work on events. It was not anything I thought I ever wanted to do. And I think I even pushed back on it a little bit like, hey, I was flattered, but like I'm an agency person, not a, an events conference person. Uh, and I don't know who it was that I was talking to at the time, one of the digital editors or editors uh, who basically positioned it to me as we're going to pay you to meet people for a living, right? Like think about like, yes, there's a lot more to events and conferences, but you're going to get paid to meet awesome people. And I was 24 at the time. And that was an invaluable opportunity. And I'm like, all right, well, when you put it like that. Uh, so I, I dove in, uh, went over to AdAge, did their conferences for about four years. And then a few of the marketers that I had built relationships with uh, hooked me up with the Brand Innovators Group. And uh, again, it was pretty early days, but it was more like, hey, check out what they're building. It's It, it was so small back then, um, more like smaller events, backroom meetings in restaurants and bars, meetings of the minds, right? Like really off the books, closed door discussions between industry leaders. Uh, but that was almost a decade ago. Uh, and we've built out a community of brand side marketers around the country. So I'm the chief content and community officer there now. And my team and I, we oversee all of our brand side relationships, uh, building out you know, all over the country, in Europe as well. We launched uh, a big initiative literally this week uh, coming off a can, uh, but in London. So we did a big Wimbledon activation. Uh, but really everything that we do is centered around how can we bring amazing marketers together, right? And sometimes it's content driven. Sometimes it's ex purely experiential and social. Sometimes it's big events. Sometimes it's really small, intimate events. But at the end of the day, it's like, can we bring great, marketers, great industry leadership together in different settings. Uh, and we've just, we were so fortunate. We've had an amazing community, amazing response over the last few years. Uh, you know, COVID was crazy. We pivoted to virtual, but we had a, there was a weird um, influx because all of a sudden when you're doing virtual events, there were all these people who, you know, you didn't have to go anywhere. You could tune in and you can zoom in, you could join in for on a virtual event. So it really opened the floodgates from a community growth perspective. And really for the last few years since then, since our return to in-person, we've just been trying to catch our breath. So we've been growing and hiring and doing events all around the country. Like we just, like you mentioned earlier at the top, uh, you know, we just did Cannes. That was our biggest activation yet. Four days of content, 30 CMOs, over 100 speakers, two VIP experiences, two stages. Uh, and we're just, like I said, at the end of the day, it's like, can we bring great people together? And I... 10 year, 14 years after accepting that job at AdAge, I still get to say that I get paid to meet great people, yourself included. And that that's my job at the end of the day, right? How can I complain? Creating all these events, and it's a great idea, right? To have like-minded people, people even maybe not like-minded, share the space together to talk about ideas. What has come out of those experiences that you've seen, maybe an example or two of some beneficial either partnerships or ideas that have been shared? What, what are some of those beneficial elements that, you know, your team has created? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, first and foremost, we have the full ecosystem. So my team and I are in charge, oversee our brand side relationships, but we bring in agency leaders, we bring in ad tech leaders, we bring in the media and publishing side of the community, right? So we think of the core community as the brand marketers, but we have a huge ecosystem of partners that we bring in, um, you know, stiff, most of whom will natively integrate into our programming or events. But again, it's for their own relationship building. So there have been many deals, many partnerships, many collaborations that come out of it, right? Like I said, at the end of the day, we just want to bring the right people together. Uh, and whether you're talking about brand to brand collaborations or media deals, ad tech deals, agency collaborations, right? There's a lot of that, that those relationships start at brand innovators. Uh, but, you know, really with the content, the other thing is like, we want to bring people together to figure shit out together, pardon my language, right? So that was really the initial thought process, um, again, different than your big industry conferences where you get up on a stage and you have to have all the answers and everything's a little bit rehearsed or safe and PR approved and legally approved. This is like, let's bring people together and it's okay not to have all the answers, but we're going to figure it out together. So again, you could pick your topic du jour, metaverse or sustainability, AI, what cultural relevance. There's a lot of topics that we, we, we talk about and it ebbs and flows with the industry conversation. But that's also really at the heart of what we're trying to do and like our spin on it is like it's not about having all the answers. It's about figuring it out together and getting those right people together. So I think, I hope at the end of the day, we can do that. I moderated a panel at Cannes about the future of marketing and we talked, we said at the beginning, you know, Let's talk about this without invoking AI, right? Like, let's try to talk about the other, right? So it's like those kinds of conversations that I think you lose a little bit of substance the bigger and bigger you get at some of these industry events. So again, we're growing too. So my challenge now is how do I capture some of that magic with as we start to, to you know, get to that level? But I hope that answers your question. I don't know. No, it certainly does. I think, you know, one of the main things, and I don't know if you can calm my nerves about this. And I don't know if it's because we live, breathe it now yeah. that we have our own company three years after leaving an agency and taking that leap. It feels like there's a lot of volatility uh, in marketing right now. And again, I don't know if it's just the sign of the times and things are shifting. And that's always been the case from the start of it. If you go back to the Mad Men days and in the fifties and, and when marketing sort of took a different direction, I just feel like there's a lot of people who are either on their pedestal, sort of speaking these things as if they're truths. I think one of the things I said to Keith when I first uh, was talking to him about joining MKTG as part of his team that, you know, my social strategy is I don't have one because how could you if it's changing every day? So why would I do that? I have a core set of principles that I try to follow and then you adjust based on what the, you know, we work more in the social space too, right? The platforms are changing. so. What, what are you seeing? Is it Does it feel that way at these events? Does it feel that way for the people you're talking to where there's a lot of uncertainty? You know, obviously layoffs are happening. It's trying to find the right channel, the right fit, the right product, the right content, all these things. Or is it just me sitting here and freaking out in my apartment? No, I mean, I think you're spot on, right? Like, I think that, I mean, look, our industry always changes and evolves, right? That's the beauty of marketing and being in this industry is it keeps you on your toes. But I think A, the pace at which that's happening and the way new technologies and new platforms are being introduced, uh, it just gets faster and faster every day. I mean, like, look at what happened, uh, you know, just in the past couple of weeks with Twitter or the past week, you know, Twitter starts to rate limit. You've got Spill's debut. You've got, you know, Blue Sky exploding. Now you have Instagram uh, coming out with threads. Uh, you know, it's it's impossible to keep up. Um on the one hand, right? And then of course you have tons of VC money that feeds the ad tech ecosystem and they want to get in front of every brand with promises of making things smarter and better and faster. You've got exciting developments in AI or, you know, whether it was the crypto or, or you know, blockchain world and metaverse world. And, and look, half the job of the marketer is saying, this is worth my time and investment or this isn't worth my time and investment, right? So you have to have, uh, that I guess you wear that skeptic hat, right? So, cause it does, there is so many things, you know, going on. There's so much flying out at you, but you have to take all of that and then add it to the fact that again, the last, look at the last five, six years of, of what's going on in the world. We went through marketing through a pandemic and then straight into marketing into in, in an economic, I don't want to say recession, but question mark uncertainty, whatever you want to call it. 
Um, so I think that, that created a lot of challenges for marketers at every level, right? And then you just have, I think, this this the, the confluence of the two, right? Like things are changing and there's new technologies and, and okay, that's, that's sort of bucket one, but then you have maybe there's more limited resources because of the economic question, right? So it's really, I, I think we are at a very volatile point, uh, but at the same time, you know, when I talk to different marketers in our community about the challenges that all this presents, there's really two ways that you can respond. One is to take a beat and pull back, right? And say, okay, we're going to pause our spend or we're going to, you know, not do anything crazy and take some time and assess, right? The other is, no, we're going to invest. We're going to invest amidst the downturn, right? And that is risky, but it's also really ambitious. And that's when a lot of these brands tend to leapfrog their competitors. If they're going to say, we're going to double down, even if it's riskier now, even if there's potential economic uncertainties looming, we're going to double our investment. We're going to continue to get in front of our, our consumers in different ways when our competitors are possibly pulling back. That's an opportunity, right? So, you know, again, it, we, and for us at Brand Innovators, look, this is our lifeblood, right? If we weren't, you know, these conversations, whether it's new technologies or addressing certain challenges in our industries, that's what keeps us in business, right? We just want to bring the right people together to, to educate each other about how to deal with that. And, and to your, to the last thing I'll say is we haven't done one of these yet, but one thing I'd love to do is do a failure summit, right? Because I think you have a lot of, a lot of experimentation and a lot of innovation, a lot of new ideas, but you don't really have a lot of people talking about what went wrong uh, and, and what you can learn from it. So I think especially these days, whether it's about investments in new technologies and emerging media or the economic question marks and, and how you're operating or shifting, you know, to uh, adapt to these times. I think there's a lot of room for conversations around what doesn't work and what didn't work, but we'll see. Maybe we'll make it happen one day. Yeah, I guess it comes down to how honest people want to be about it. Um, but I, I, you're right. I find a lot of lessons in, in those kind of things. Um, I've often wondered if, if it makes people um, experiment less or kind of jump in first less, but guess it matters on a, on a case-by-case basis. Um, you did give a bunch of, of takeaways. Um, any, anything else you'd wrap up with Can? Like what, what was your mindset heading into Italy? Maybe that's a little bit of a different question, but uh, what, were, what were your takeaways from France? So my take, look, well, Can is a boondoggle, right? Like it's, it's, it's crazy. There's so much going on. Uh, Number one takeaway is I think a lot of, you know, a year ago, the metaverse dominated every conversation at Cannes. Uh, like I was hinting to earlier, this year it was AI, right? Like for better or for worse, I think my personal two cents, I think there's a lot more substance for mo more brands uh, when it comes to AI and, and leveraging it and, and what impact it can make, whether creatively, whether internally, whether externally, right? And again, like AI is just a new term, right? But, but a lot of this stuff has been around in, in different iterations already. But I think there's more excitement around the real impact that AI can make in different ways versus last year or the past you know two years when metaverse dominated the conversations and it was like a stretch for a lot of brands is this really something that we should be investing in someplace where our consumers are that we need to be and look for some brands maybe that that was right for them but i think it was almost being force-fed uh into our into our industry um in a way that uh maybe the appetite really wasn't there for it ai We'll see how that continues to develop, but I think the actual practical implications of some of these technologies, uh, again, whether it's for creative purposes, whether it's purely for internal automation and uh, purposes, whatever it is, there's a lot of different routes you could take to leverage it, but I think the impact is much more tangible. Um, and then what I'll say is what I've been saying since, you know, for the last year and a half, people, I think, are still in this post or return to real world mindset where they cannot get enough of other human beings um, in, in, in person situations, right? Like I think psychologically we're still as a, as a group um, 
suffering, that isolation that, you know, for, for two, two and a half years, whatever it was for different people. Um, so the return to in-person, you could tell, like people are just still so excited to be back amongst other humans, whether it's for conferences or for parties or just dinners, big groups, small groups. There's like a, like I said, I've been doing this for 14 years. There's a level of excitement around just being with other, we have a very social industry. Right. So just deny people that and starve them of that, I think, was tough. And, and people are just so excited. And you have the serendipity at Cannes. Right. Just like with South by two. Right. Like, I don't know if you guys are, you know, South by is historically my favorite event. You're walking around Austin. You just meet amazing people. Sometimes you know them. Sometimes you don't know them. Sometimes they're people you haven't seen in five, ten years. So there, that's the magic of, of a place like of going to Cannes, you know, for me anyway, is like, who do you run into? It's like, oh, my gosh, I haven't seen you in so long. Right. And I think that directly plays into uh, that social aspect of our industry. So so above all. That, you know, for me, again, being in the events business, it's a fantastic validation that that people are excited to be with each other. I'm glad to hear the the narrative or the takeaway on AI, because I think for a long time we were discussing how it's going to put people out of jobs and people are getting scared. And I'm happy because we have pivoted uh, not very long ago about how can this help us? How can this benefit us? What are some things that we can do? that doesn't necessarily make sense for a human to potentially do it. A couple of those things have been when we mock up different variations of something or we take some derivatives of a mood board and we try to get the client on the same page. That's a lot of human hours that could potentially be wasted when idea two and three don't move forward and you know idea one does. You put a lot of human manpower on that, it's a lot of burn time. So AI has really helped us with that. And finesse our writing, but we still feel like it lacks uh, empathy and human feelings. And there's going to need to be a, a, a solution there, which I think is human, quite frankly, but it does help the process. So I'm really happy to hear that. Uh, I guess the the industry at large is looking at AI in that way. Yeah. Well, I mean, think of it, right. We call it AI, but it's not really AI, right? It's not artificial intelligence. It can't replace people. But it's a tool and it can be an incredibly valuable tool in different in different ways, right? Whether it raises the starting point for creative work. So you're saving yourself time and hours, right? Um, but like any other tool, maybe like any any CRM tool, any social media tool, I don't think it's directly putting out. I mean, I've heard stories, but like, I don't know if they're just fear mongering, you know, hype stories or, or, or what. But I think like any tool and any new technology it's not the technology is not going to put somebody out of a job, right? People that know how to use that technology better than you might put you out of a job, right? But but there's an opportunity for marketers to self-educate and learn to use these tools and, and develop new expertise. So that's really the goal. Like it's it's not about being afraid of AI. Embrace it, learn how to use it, learn how to use it in a way that makes you a more efficient, more productive, or better marketer in any way that it can. And you make yourself that much more valuable to a marketing organization, to an agency, to a brand, right? That's all it is. It's just a tool. And I guess the humans will still have to brief the other humans or the AI. And I won't say that was Mikhail Jackson who works yeah. at Under Armour. He yeah. tweeted that out. So that's his. I'm stealing it for the podcast. I thought that was a great sort of moment for me to be like, oh, right. <laughs> we still have a step there that usually is is one of the most critical, if not the most critical step between the client and the agency or the creator is that sort of, what do I want out of this? What are my objectives? And we've been battling that for years on both sides, probably of how to get that right. And until, you know, there, there is maybe the two AIs speaking to each other or sort of the technology speaking to each other, there's an opportunity there. But in, I just think also too, I've thought about this a lot. I think that there's going to be reluctance to use something or see something that you really don't feel is a human touch to it. And at the base level of who we are, and again, you could go back in the in time to watch the evolution. I mean, advertising and marketing tactics have worked for decades by humans. They've just evolved and shown up in different ways. Exactly. But I want to pick up on something that you said, because it, you know, I, I've had a few conversations about this recently and think about the way that today's younger consumers already have like a bullshit meter up, right? In ways that, you know, other other generations didn't, right? They see through advertising, they want transparency, they know 
what's up, right? They're not they're not fooled, uh, right? That bullshit detector is at like is, is in full force, right? Totally. They just got that lens going all the time. They're gonna have and younger consumers who are born into a world with like AI impacted content and copy. They're going to have that same bullshit detector. They're going to be able to look at your creative, your copy and say that was AI or that was human, right? Like there's a, I don't know if it's like an uncanny valley thing or what, but like I said, it's, it could be great as a starting point, but if you're going to take something that an AI creates and, and use it as your final product, it's going to set off that same bullshit detector, I think. And you're going to see a whole generation of consumers born that, just like they ignore advertising that doesn't fit their model of what's acceptable, they're going to do the same thing for AI generated stuff that just says like, because it, 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 it feels lazy, right? It's not like, hey, if you want me as a consumer, put put two seconds into it. Don't just give me what ChatGPT spits out and expect me to accept it. Yeah, I think, I think we're seeing uh, this renaissance of like hand-built, handmade in other industries. Craftsmanship, right? You're going to see that in our industry yeah, really soon. Totally. Yeah, and, and I think you're going to see agencies and other organizations, right? Like if you went to Cannes, everything was like, hey, we've got this AI tool. We've got that AI. I think you're going to see a complete 180 and you're going to see different agencies, especially promote exactly what you're talking about. Hey, we actually don't use AI. Everything that you get is completely 100% human driven in every way, right? Craft, it's artisan, it's, uh, you know, your, your small batch olive oil from Italy, from, from that small town in Tuscany that never saw a machine. It's hand pressed by, by people who have lived there for 200 years. You know what I mean? Like, that's what you're going to see. And, and I think at the end of the day, there's a reason people want that in food. They want that in furniture. They're going to want it in advertising too. You hit on a great comment there about the savviness of the younger generation and that they've grown up on this they've seen it they kind of have that bullshit detector as you put it and so i i was going to ask you about that and seeing the generations and understanding you know what works and what doesn't you've already kind of clarified your thoughts on that so to piggyback off of it i think folks who listen to this and in general in listening to marketing or digital content podcasts or reading the information on it sometimes look for those thought leaders. And the one problem I have with some some of the thought leaders is that it, it very much we're now speaking in TED Talk or we're seeing Steve Jobs clones. Uh, we're also seeing a lot of fraudulent shit out there from so-called leaders. Um, I mean, outside of marketing, but Sam Bakeman Fried, like stuff like this of where you think they are the person they're not. They just end up being in the same sort of evolution of a, of a person who had a great idea, could be very successful then went evil and took advantage. And now what do you take away from that? So I'd love to hear if you have anybody or thoughts on some folks or maybe ways, obviously brain invaders is a great spot, but like, I think the younger generation needs to be able to hear from people that, again, it's like what you're talking about with the failure comment, right? What doesn't work? What, what am I? Hey, my answer is, I don't know. Like I'm children, not like the, I got this rehearsed 45 minute speech and I'm a clone of Steve Jobs and this is how I speak and I point and I've rehearsed this whole thing. I'm not back to not being a real human. So a uh, long winded question, but that that's what I was asking from you is if anybody out there stands out in your opinion. I mean, it's hard to name specific people, but what I will say is regardless of that whether it was metaverse or AI or even something much more, much less sexy, right? Like another topic, you know, programmatic media buying or the retail media, and, right? Like there's a lot of people that will pontificate and we'll talk about X, Y, or Z. A, I mean, look, just with anything else, I, where if you're wearing that skeptic hat, right? Like, are they trying to sell you something? Right. Like that's number one, because, you know, if you look at the metaverse stuff, like so much of that dialogue was pushed by people who were going to make a profit off of people investing in the metaverse. Right. Like it wasn't like there was an appetite and demand for it where people were saying, teach me about the metaverse, talk about the metaverse at every conference. Right. Like it was it, that push was coming from people who were had plays in the metaverse and wanted to generate that buzz and excitement and to get that money. Right. So if you're going to be thinking about like, Hey, does this person know what they're talking about? Like take a look and say like it, where are they making their money from? Right. Like that, that's one. And then almost the flip side of it is 
look, we have lots of CMOs at our events, especially the tent poles like at Cannes or, or others. But a lot of our bread and butter events, we really try to pull in the practitioners. And it may not always look as sexy on an event program when, you know, people aren't, you know, C-suite or whatever. But like these are the people that are in it every day. They're living it and breathing it. Do you think the CMOs at most major brands are going to talk to you about the nuances of programmatic media buying? No, they have they have people. They, they bring in experts that they lean on. So like that's the other thing is like you want to hear from the people who are who's who's doing it right. Like not the people who are paid to be a figurehead um at a lot of times so so that's just my two cents and look there are i don't want to knock anybody like there are plenty of senior senior leaders who do spend a lot of time making sure they're educated both from external sources and their own team and and that's why they last 15 20 years at these brands and others maybe don't right like cmo tenure super short so like that is a a a, a superpower that some of these have uh and i don't know how they do it but like just i would say just you know it, it's a it's the two sides of the same coin, right? Just be skeptical of of who you're hearing from, and at the end of the day, I would trust the people in the trenches uh, more so than the people who are just paid to pontificate. That's a great point. In your opinion, who is doing marketing and brand right or really well these days? Oh wow, that that's a loaded question, right? Like, I mean, I think that there's a lot of brands you can look at. Um, for a lot of a, a lot of different reasons, um, you know. Personally, like I, I love the whole challenger brand world, right? Um, not, I, I mean, like the D 2 C world is going through a bit of like a reckoning right now. I think they've they've learned a lot of lessons over the last few years, especially when it comes to like investing so much in growth and acquisition without thinking as much about brand. So, like, I, I mean. I'm not really answering your question, but like I, I'm really excited to, to, you know, look at some of these really there were all these D to C darlings, right? These challenger brand darlings that have been on a roller coaster, everything from like Stitch, Stitch Fix to, uh, you know, Allbird Shoes and, um, you know, Glossier, right? Like it, like just so many cool D to C challenger brands. And they were at the top of the world. Peloton's another great example. They just brought in Leslie, the former former Twitter CMO, to be their CMO. And right, like a lot of these D 2 C darlings are are still super cool brands, right? But they they started to struggle a bit. So as a landscape, you know, answer like I'm really excited to see how they tackle the next phase in their existence, right? Like in terms of can they recapture uh, or or find that sweet spot again? Um, especially, uh, you know, think, and thinking about our events, the big brands of the world, the big McDonald's of the world, the Pepsi's of the world can learn a lot more from how these challengers operate than the other way around. But, um, I know that was like a, a non-answer. I, I do love, uh, I love Mint Mobile. They're one of my favorites. They, you know, whether it's working with Mark Hamill or Ryan Reynolds, obviously that, I mean, anything he touches turns to gold. It's crazy. Uh, but Mint Mobile's advertising, um, uh, sorry, I'm conflating too. Sorry, Mint Mobile is great, but uh, Jack in the Box was the other because they worked with Mark Hamill. Both of them uh, do phenomenal work. So really excited about what they've been doing um, out in SoCal. I'm trying to think of others off the top of my head. I mean, like MasterCard is not a sexy brand in, in you know, if I'm going to compare it to like Mint Mobile or Jack in the Box in terms of like the fun element but they employ some of the smartest marketers uh, and some of the best in the business. I mean, we had their CMO Raja talking at uh, at our can event, and one of the things that he said to me, like one of the, he he's one of these CMOs. He's been around Mastercard for decades, right? Like he he's doing it right, and he was asked directly about their in reallocation of resources away from traditional advertising into things like experiences, and he said very very clearly, and I'm going to paraphrase but was not shy about the fact that so much traditional advertising is interruptive, right? It gets in between the consumers and whatever experience they want, right? So the whole priceless experiences platform that he's built is like, how can MasterCard be a facilitator of the experiences that you want, not interrupting them, 
right? So like, that's what I, I love and I will geek out on. Like there are really cool brands out there. I mean, Liquid Death is a really cool brand, right? Love what they're doing. But when it comes to just like the approach and the philosophy, like that's what I, I geek out on. It's like hearing a marketer, a CMO say, we want to change the way that we connect with our consumers and get out of this paradigm of interruption and move into like, how can we be more of that facilitator of the content that you want? Yeah, I feel like Fanatics has done a pretty good job. If you watch their social, um, it's been pretty strong. And what Michael Rubin has done, I mean, I was very jealous of his uh, party that they that they just had. I was like, man, any celebrity party like that? I mean, that's that one looks like the one to be at. But I think they've done a really good job in social, sort of connecting that, you know, what is it? Merchandise, sports merchandise. That's it. But right. Like they're the vehicle to it. Um, I'm going to ask you a really tough question and it's been on my mind and I've been sort of debating it amongst some of the people in my life. Um, the algorithm. And yeah. this is, it, there's probably a lot of different directions this can go, but I just get the feeling that it's just not beneficial. And I know it's a vehicle to sell, right. To get brands so that they can be put into your feed. Right. To your point, what you just said of like getting in the way of what people want, this seems to be headed towards a tipping point where people are just sick of, of getting served up stuff that they, do, they don't even want to follow, they don't like. Then the advertisements on top of that layer, now you're just getting people who want to be away from it and get away from it. And uh, I, I know the, the reasons are behind it. I'd love to hear what, what your thoughts are on maybe something that is that doesn't have an algorithm. Is that going to be maybe the next thing that we see where people can truly pick back to the old days, the wild, wild west, where you could actually pick somebody, follow them. When they say something, you read it. <laughs> I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, look, you know, everybody has a different algorithm. So first, I mean, like what you get on Instagram versus Twitter versus TikTok is going to be different. Like TikTok, mm -hmm. TikTok does it well, right? Like TikTok has perfected the algorithm. Uh, I don't know, right, what magic they have. That is what makes TikTok TikTok, right? Like their For You page, uh, you know, in terms of the signals that they take from what you like, what your friends like, you know, what your friends' friends like. I don't know how they know, but TikTok knows what kind of content you're interested in. So I think they are the holy grail of algorithms that work well that people will embrace. I rarely spend time on TikTok on my following I almost exclusively spend it on the for you. Twitter is the complete opposite. Twitter has a for you and a, and a, you know your feed, your following, and I've painstakingly curated who I follow on Twitter for 15 years or so. So, you know, I I very much specifically want that group. Although it's nice to have the option, and then you have Instagram, which totally destroyed their own user experience. Again, like I don't want to offend anybody, uh, but like my Instagram feed is mostly garbage meme accounts, ads for things that I won't buy, right? Like, I think it's gotten maybe a little bit better in the last couple of months, but for a while there, it was like, it was almost unusable as, a, as I, I almost, like I never scrolled Instagram. I would tap through people's stories, uh, but I never scrolled the feed because none of it was relevant to me. So, you know, in terms of where that goes in the future, I mean, look, we're, we talk a lot about the world of contextual relevance these days at our events, especially with, I don't want to get too, too nerdy, but like with, with cookie deprecation coming up and like that context becomes so much more important. Um, sort of like in, in the good old days of, 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 you know, by association. Right. I, I think personally, you know, we look, look, I have no idea what's about to happen. Like I said, at the top of the, the the recording, we just, we have Blue Sky, we have Threads about to come out, Spill just debuted, which is really cool. It's, it's almost like a Wild West in social media all over again. I think it would be really cool to see something like the good old days of AOL, where you had AIM, like the instant messenger function of just like, here's the people that I want to talk to. And then you have themed chat rooms, right? Like, do I want to join a football room? Do I want to join this room to talk about the new Indiana Jones movie or the Emmy Awards, right? Like you could have thematically driven groups where context and maybe algorithmically promoted content works if it's relevant to the discussion. And then you also have your direct one-to-one -one relationship with the people that you want to talk to that's not 
flooded by irrelevant, low-quality ads, right? So they're almost two distinct experiences in my mind. And it just, you know, I was thinking about it recently and like AOL of all places kind of had some of those pieces back in the day, uh, right? Like almost ironically, but it'll be interesting to see if somebody can recapture that. Yeah, I mean, I listen to Mark Zuckerberg talk about that, you know, really I'm focused on, on serving up the things that you're interested in. Why do I need that? Well, I mean, look, there's an element of discovery, right? Like I, I, I do, I personally like. We over-indexed to that though. That's the problem. Sure, sure. Like, I, you know, again, maybe I'm a different persona, right? Or a type on the social channels because I go hunt and seek those types of conversations or look for them or have the, the following. Maybe you can make the argument that somebody who I wouldn't follow shows up in the feed, then I, I, I'm now exposed to a person that I would like to follow. And now, now, now we're churning, but I, I don't know. I just, I think we've over-indexed too far the other way. I, I don't disagree. I just, like I said, I think they're almost two distinct experiences that people want and people can get both without having them conflated or merged together. Right? Like, let's say there's a Cowboys Giants game on TV, like, and I want to join the discussion online Maybe there should be a room, like a virtual room for, you know, everybody who's watching this game to talk about it. And there I'm happy to have people that I don't follow who have input to share about the game or brands like Fanatics or FanDuel or whomever. They're going to advertise to me something contextually relevant. Hey, you're watching the Cowboys Giants game. You know, I'm on DraftKings. I'm on FanDuel. Like, you know, here's a, a special, you know, offer to make a bet at halftime, whatever it is. I think that there's a play for that and that if it, it's relevant and a value add to people. And when you don't want to, when that game's not on or when you don't want to be in it, you're just simply not in that room, right? And then you have that, like, the aim part of it, the instant messenger, the one-to-one conversations or group conversations with your friends, right? So I think it's almost like that these, you know, they're two distinct experiences. And again, just because I'm interested in football one day doesn't mean I'm interested in it in the next day, right? So mm-hmm. we got to give people that opportunity to pop in and pop out or create like, um, like I said, rooms that maybe don't exist forever. Maybe they're t- like, you know, you create them the day of the event. Hey, the Emmys are on. Everybody wants to talk about the Emmys, go into this room, right? Like, I don't know. Like, I'm just thinking about different, like, cause right now Twitter is chaos. So like, yep. I don't know. Are we going to end up with another Twitter that's, you know, kind of like blue sky where there's a similar dynamic or maybe there's an opportunity to do something a little bit different? I just think we created a billion dollar idea. So I don't think this should go live. (laughs) You just you just created Google Plus. Congrats, guys. Oh, no. (laughs) Hang on. Google Plus. They were really ahead of their time. Holy cow. Google Plus, Google Wave. I mean, here's yeah. the thing. I, I tried a bunch of the Google Plus wasn't bad. The UI was terrible. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, like again, the idea of it is fine, but like you have to create a. I mean, look at Mastodon also. Again, I don't want to knock people. I know people love it, but like it just alienated so many people because it was not user friendly. If it were, they could have already been the next Twitter. You know what I mean? You yeah. have to think about that that experience in, in these products. So the idea is only half the battle, right? Like, you know, we created a billion dollar idea right here, but you got to create something compelling that people actually can understand. I, and want I didn't to know that work. was part of it. <laughs> I thought the VCs just give you money. I mean, they do from what I, <laughs> yeah, what sure. I see. You just Don't worry to about that later. That sounds like someone else's problem. Yeah, yeah exactly. I love it. Um, what is keeping you on Twitter? Because I have a daily existential crisis <laughs> myself as to why I'm still on this fucking platform. Oh, I mean, it is it's tough, right? Like I I I do love Twitter. It has been invaluable to me in my career. Like I owe every after my first job, my first job after college was at a PR agency, but every job I had since then, I got through Twitter, through relationships that I built on Twitter. Um, whether it was going to McCann or from McCann to AdAge, from AdAge to Brand Innovators, it was really like Twitter's instrumental. Um, it was a megaphone and a microphone for me when I was building my voice early on. Uh, and, and more than that, it was just a relationship tool. I mean, look, it's gone downhill in a lot of ways, right? You have a lot of people, a lot of quote unquote thought leaders that are using it uh, to grow their followings for no reason than to only grow their followings, right? You've got it so much spam 
um, which which kills me. And you've got, worst of all, just like a lot of hate and bigotry and vitriol and racism and toxicity. And that is honestly the 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 worst, you know, everything else I could deal with. Um, those relationships are hard to replicate. You know, you can't just port them over to another platform. I mean, we're all trying manually. It's like, hey, follow me on Blue Sky, follow me on Spill, follow me on T2. But like, some of those relationships have have gone for decades and and uh, or or decade and a half rather it hasn't been around for decades, but it still provides value. Definitely less to me today. I'm definitely on it less. Uh, I'm not, and that was before the rate limiting happened. Um, but as long as I can extract value out of it, and the people that I want to talk to are there, I'll probably still be on it. But it's getting it's getting tougher and tougher um, with every bad decision that I see, and and this is I'm probably going to have people send me threats if this airs and and the wrong people find it because they've got their stands and you know that they can do no wrong. Uh, and look, I'm excited. I know I don't know Linda personally. Uh, I've heard amazing Linda, you know the Twitter's new CEO from NBC. Um, I don't know her personally, although I, I know a lot of people that do know her and speak very very highly of her. Um, so I am, I, I am optimistic. I am hopeful um, that they can right the ship. I don't want to see Twitter die. I want to see it thrive. I, I do. I just like there have to be some there very serious decisions made about what they want for the future of the platform. Um, and more importantly, who's going to make those decisions, right, is, is kind of a key factor. So I'm still on it as long as the right people are there. But the it's becoming harder and harder to extract the value. I love Twitter. I mean, again, I think we're all in the same boat. I've, I've found many relationships. I've learned how to, to do things, how to think, how to do work. Um, it's, it's, it has been an incredible tool for my career. I think also, you know, I know everybody likes to have their critique and I'm uh, at the front line of that, of providing analysis to all these platforms, it's really fucking hard to build one of these and to manage the amount of people and information and the level of responsibility. You know, if you have WhatsApp or if you have Instagram and these communication vehicles who have only been around, like you said, for a decade, we're just in the embryonic stages of this. And I do, if there is ever uh, giving the benefit of the doubt, I do have that because I think we all have an idea of what the perfect system would be. The government, what is their role in this? What is the regulation? What you can and can't say? What is hate speech? How do you, I mean, we could go on for hours and hours on it. It's a very challenging thing because it's the first. It's the first of human existence that this has been used as a communication device. And so I, I hope, like you said, we're, we're just maybe it gets a little ugly before it gets better. That would be the optimistic view of it. But right now it's been, it's been tough. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I can't even imagine it's a Herculean task, right? It's an unenviable impulse. I, I joked like, Hey, wh where was my, my invite to audition for CEO of Twitter, right? Like I've been, I've been on that platform yeah. since its infancy. I've got, but it, it is, it's an unenviable task. But I think at the end of the day, like I said, the factor for me is who is making the decisions. Um, and you're never, when you have, I don't know how many people use Twitter on a, on a daily basis at this point, but when you have however million people that do, you're never going to be able to root out all hate speech or all bigotry, but are you acting in a way that's trying to make it better or, or not, right? Like, and, and that's what I want to see, right? Because sometimes it seems like, you know, again, in the past, you were, you knew from Twitter's leadership that they had, they were doing what they can. They had a big trust and safety team, right? Like they were not going as far as outright content moderation, obviously, but they were doing what they could to try to keep it a safe environment, right? I don't see that happening right now, right? And you're going to have a lot of people at a certain point, I think that are exposed to a level of bigotry or racism that eventually don't see that effort being made to root it out of the platform. And like I said, it's not, it's an impossible task. You're never going to get rid of it completely. People can make a million anonymous profiles and say whatever they want to say. It's free speech. But like, what is their stance? I think at the end of the day, do they want to be a platform where it's okay to say terrible things to people uh, or not? Right. I don't know. 
My only, and I'll leave it at this because again, this is, we could go on for hours, but my only other option out there is no anonymous profiles. That's you, have to put in your, you have to put in your legal information. I don't get it. Like I know, I, I believe if, if I have the history right, Friendster, you had to in MySpace at one point, um, they were the first ones to say you can have an anonymous profile and that sort of opened up that Pandora's box, I think was the history of it. But to me, at least then you have some responsibility, right? If, if some asshole saying stuff out there, their, their employer is going to know who it is. There's some accountability. But again, like, I, I don't know if that's the solution. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if Facebook changed their policies, but they used to have it so that you had to have a real identity tied to your Facebook account. I think now they maybe they, they, they I've heard that they're encouraging people to create multiple accounts or I don't know what, but so maybe that's not true anymore. But I, I agree. Like, I think that is, it's not a perfect solution, but I think a lot of people do tend to hide behind uh, anonymity. Um, so hopefully, again, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, we could talk about this all day. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll get you out of here on one more. I will say you summarized the Twitter thing really yeah. well. I've, cool. I've found that it's just a platform I've spent the most time on. Uh, I've invested the most in and I'm sort of in my Larry David days of it where I'm just kind of like, guys, just tell me where we're going as long as we're all going to be there. But I'm not leaving until you tell me that we're all going to be there. That's pretty much where I'm, I'm holding out on. Tell Guys, just tell me where the fuck to go. Exactly. Exactly. But look, I mean, I'm still getting a lot of value of it. And like I said, at the end of the day, I am rooting for them to turn this around and figure things out. Like like you said, Jonah, we're we're in the embryonic stage of social media and the internet still in, general, in the big picture, right? This is, we're still so early uh, when you're in it, it's hard to see that. Um, it's more about, you know, for me, the intent and, and you know, show, you know, put some, put some uh, action behind the words. Uh, I hope that they create an amazing experience for their users. Um, but if they don't, I think there's a lot of people out there ready to eat the lunch right now. All right. Well, we appreciate the time. Wish we could do longer. Uh, I guess we'll end with, you know, tell, tell us something that you want to promote or talk about, or maybe something that brand innovators is, uh, you know, coming up with next that you want to share? How would you like to end this? Oh my gosh. Oh, we well, for, from a brand innovators perspective, we've got so much, like we're literally doing stuff around the country. Uh, at, you know, everything from Beyonce concerts at SoFi stadium to uh, experiences that we're going to be producing at F1 in Austin or during art Basel and, and Miami art week in Miami. Our next big tentpole event is going to be in October in New York. Uh, we're going to be doing a luxury brand summit uh, at Jaguar Land Rover's head headquarters in North America, but here in my backyard in New Jersey. Like we've just got stuff literally all over the country in Columbus, in Chicago, in Dallas, in in Boston. So you know, if you want to get involved, find me. I guess you, you know Twitter's the best way. Just just hit me up in the DMs as long as I'm there. Um, but, you know, I, I just, like I said at the beginning, I love uh, that I get to meet with and talk to great people for a living. So this was fantastic. I'm usually the one interviewing people or putting together panels or whatever. So uh, I, I appreciate you having me on and just turning the tables for me a bit. That's a wrap for this week. Thanks for listening to the We Need to Be Doing That podcast. Visit we need to be doing that.com for more episodes and contact information. <laughs>